You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're victorious. You've defeated our enemy for us. You reign, you're sovereign, you're supreme. You're above all. No authority, no ruler, no power. Nothing compares to who you are in and of yourself. And Lord, we are your people. We're your army. We're in your train. And you've called us to be victorious. You've called us to share that victory. Lord, the Bible says that our our battle is not against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And Lord, our obedience will be complete, as Paul says, Our victory will happen when our obedience is complete. Lord, we need to come to that place in our lives where we recognize that we're in a war, that you've called us to an obedience, to follow you, to fight against the evil one. Lord, sometimes we get so overwhelmed. We get so overwhelmed by our sin and the circumstances of our lives, the addictions that we wrestle with, the anger that flares up, the bitterness that's in our hearts. Sometimes, Lord, we feel, honestly, we feel that we're just, we can't be victorious. We're slaves. We're slaves to sin. And although we see other people who rejoice in their freedom, we think that it's not for us. Lord, forgive us for that. Help us to understand this morning that we can be more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. I pray, Father, this morning you would help us to understand that although Satan is like a roaring lion seeking to devour and destroy and kill Lord, the Bible says that we simply stand firm. We stand firm and he flees. I thank you, Lord, that in you we are victorious. And I pray, Father, this morning and and, and next Sunday morning as we deal with this beautiful passage of Scripture, that you would speak to our hearts about what it means to walk in victory. Not for our sake, as Charles prayed, not for our sake, Lord, but for your glorious name's sake. We want to live lives that are so countercultural, so Christ-like that the world will look and see the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his gospel in us, in our homes, in our marriages, in our lives, in our conversation, in all that we do. So Lord, would you open our hearts now, open our minds to understand this passage of scripture. Speak to us, challenge us, encourage us, confront us, I pray, in these next few minutes. And then as we have communion at the end of the service, Lord, empower us to go out of here to live lives of victory following our victorious Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and I can't tell you how nice it is to preach to a a church with uh, people in it. This This is absolutely awesome. It's been like months I've been standing up here in these few... Wonderful brothers and sisters of the worship team have spread themselves out throughout the sanctuary so I would have somebody to look at. 
But this is just awesome to see uh, each of you here this morning. That was exciting to see Noel and Karis baptized. That was just awesome. And we're going to have two more baptisms in the next service. And it's just neat to know that God is at work in our church. And um, if you have not been baptized, if you have never done what Jesus told us to do as sort of the first act of obedience as a Christian, you need to get in this tank. And we can make this happen next week. We'll keep the water. It may not be chlorinated. But you're tough, you've been through a pandemic, you'll survive that. (laughs) So one of the things that Cindy and I like to do uh, is exercise. I used to hate exercising, um, but in the last number of years, I've really gotten to enjoy it a lot. And so I, I do all kinds of stuff. So like yesterday, Cindy and I brought our bikes down to Niagara. Riding bikes in Niagara is amazing because it's so flat. So I'm, we're riding out, I don't know where we, we ended up sort of, I think, on the other side of Virgil somewhere, uh, by that McDonald's down there. Anyway, so riding your bikes, and I'm thinking to myself, like, I wonder if it's too late to apply for the Tour de France, like, because I'm, I am just killing it, like, I'm just, poor Cindy's way back there in the distance, I can see her in my mirror. And then we get to this wherever we were, and we turned around because that's how not to get lost, right? You know, the breadcrumb thing. So we're coming back. I turn around, and I'm, think, I'm thinking, I wonder where you apply for the, and all of a sudden, uh, the wind hits me. And I never knew that you had hurricanes down here. That's kind of a, so Halton Hills have got these hills, right? Like, it's, it's, it's a challenge, but here you've got this, like, Chinook that comes through, and it just, uh, anyways, getting back was a bit of a challenge. Cindy had to carry me. So, so, so we like to do a lot of stuff. So I swim in the winter times, and that's, that's pretty boring, but it's something that you got to do if you want to die young. But one of the things I do when I'm not biking or swimming is I walk. And when I walk by myself, I usually listen to podcasts. So I'll listen to Ligonier, or I'll listen to other things. But one of the guys that I really like to listen to, and he's not a Christian, it's, it's called Hardcore History. His name's Dan Carlin. And Dan Carlin has these long, long, long podcasts, 20, 30 hours on certain events in history. So right now I'm listening to what he calls Supernova in the East. It's all about the Pacific War in the Second World War, the Second World War. Fascinating stuff was going on in the Pacific between 1942 and to the end of the war when the, when the bomb was dropped. And Dan, Dan Carlin makes a huge point of this, that early in 1942, the Americans broke the Japanese code. They were able to read their mail, essentially. So they knew exactly what the Japanese were planning. They knew everything that the Japanese high command was planning to do. They knew their strategies, they knew knew their tactics and their scheme, the schemes that they were developing. They knew where they were planning to attack, when they were planning to attack. They knew everything, and ultimately, they were able to thwart the Japanese and, and win the war. So, for instance, the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Battle of Midway, they were designed by the Imperial Japanese Navy to be surprise attacks on Midway and, and uh, Port Mosby down in um, uh, that big island. It's not in my notes. No, the big island down there. You know. We all know. Anyways, <laughs> the Americans got the Japanese plans, and they surprised them. So the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Battle of Midway, was the Americans surprising the Japanese surprise attack. And that's why they won. And that happened over and over and over again. And I say that because of what Paul says in in 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. So if you have your Bible, I'd like you to read it, for, read it with me. And I want to just sort of settle on one word for a second. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the strategies, the plans of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so you said it twice now, that you may be able to withstand in the evil, evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand. Stand. Paul is nearing the end of his epistle to the Ephesian church. He's talked to them a lot about theology. He's talked to them a lot about what it means to live the Christian life, what God expects of his people. And now he's telling them, guys, this is not going to be easy. We are in a war. We are in a battle with the devil. And if we're going to win this fight, we've got to be prepared. We've got to be prepared. And he essentially says two things. He says, First of all, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. He says it to them twice. And he says this is the only way, fully armored, that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Why? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not a material or a human or a natural battle. The battle for the Christian is one against spiritual darkness. It's a battle against the demonic forces of evil. It is a battle against the devil himself. And in order to win this battle, we gotta do two things. In order for you individually and for us as a congregation to win this battle and be victorious, we've gotta do two things. The first thing is this, we've gotta put on the whole armor of God. And this week, a little bit, and then next week, we're gonna be talking about what the whole armor of God looks like. But secondly, we must be cognizant of the schemes, the plans of the devil. He has a strategy that he wants to use against us as a church and against you individually, in your home, in your workplace, in your private thought life. He wants to destroy you. He has a plan, he has schemes, he has tactics, and we need to be aware of them. Any Christian in any church can be victorious. But we must be committed to these two things, putting on the full armor of God and being aware of Satan's plans, his schemes, his ploys, his tricks. What would have happened if, if during the Second World War, during the Battle of the Pacific, Chester Nimitz, who was the American um, Supreme Commander over the Navy, I guess was his title, what would happen if he had said, although I have broken the Japanese codes, in the spirit of fair play and sportsmanship, I'm not going to study the enemy's strategy. I could know that he is going to attack mid midway, but I'm going to go spend some time fighting down in New Guinea. That's the island. It came to me. That's what happens when you're 64. New Guinea, Port Mosby. What would have happened? The Americans still would probably have won the war. The Australians would have still won the war. But it would have been a much more prolonged, much more bloody, much more painful, much more difficult process. The reason the war was won so quickly in the Pacific is because 
Nimitz was aware of the strategies that his enemy was going to use against him. And as Christians, if we're going to walk victorious in Christ, if we're going to win this battle, the battle for our home, the battle for our marriages, the battle for the integrity of our minds, the battle for our character, if we're going to win the battle, we've got to be aware of what Satan is going to do against us, how he is going to attack us, his strategies, his schemes, his ploys, his tactics. And so many of us simply are oblivious to what Satan does. Amen. <laughs> I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is an interesting passage of Scripture. And I can't say for sure that what I'm going to say right now is true, but I think it's true. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is Paul's response to what he taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you remember, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with a very rebellious, very sinful, very messed up congregation of people in Corinth. And one of the things that he is appalled by is that they have ignored a particular sin in the church, a particularly grievous sin. What's happened is that a young man is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. So there's incest going on in the church. Father is obviously remarried, and so his son and his wife are in a relationship together. And the church hasn't done anything. They haven't disciplined this guy. They haven't, they, they've just totally abandoned their responsibility as, as, as Christians to deal with this kind of thing. And Paul says stuff like, don't you know that a little leaven, a little bit of sin can spread throughout the church so quickly and destroy the church? And so he says, discipline this guy. Put him out of the church. He can't be in fellowship. He can either have his sin or he can have his fellowship, but he can't have both. This is essentially what 1 Corinthians 5 is all about. So the church, under the direction of the Apostle Paul, does the right thing. They shun this guy. They put him out of the church. And now we come to 2 Corinthians 2. And I want to pick up the, the passage at about verse 6. It says this. Well, no, let's go to, verse, go to verse 8. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone who you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have also forgiven anything has been, if I have forgiven anything, it has been for your sake and in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes or his ploys or his strategies. So what had happened here is that they had done the right thing. They had forgiven this sinning Christian. They had put him out of the church. But it, after he repented, after he said, hey, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn from my sin. I want to come back into fellowship with the church. I want to come back into a relationship with my brothers and sisters. They said, no. And Paul, I think, is writing here and saying, look, reaffirm your love for this guy. Don't, don't continue to reject him. Forgive him. Put your arms around him. Be gracious to him. Show him the kindness that Christ is showing you. And then he says this in conclusion, almost as an afterthought, but it's a beautiful afterthought. He says, do this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. 
Sometimes, folks, we get outwitted by Satan. Sometimes, because we are not aware of what he is trying to do in our lives, he wins the battle. He defeats us. Our our marriages are hurt. Our integrity is hurt. Our relationships are hurt. Our walk with God is hurt. Our intimacy with him is estranged at times because we are simply not aware of his strategies. And Satan, as a consequence, defeats us. So here's the truth, and I want you to hear this. We can read Satan's mail. We can know his plans. He is not innovative. He is not creative. He is not novel. He is not inventive. He uses the same old ancient tactics, the same old tired strategies that he's been using since the beginning of time. And he uses them and we fall for them. Why? Because we are not aware of his strategies. We're not aware of what he's doing. We don't see it coming. And as a consequence, we're vulnerable. And he just rolls, us, just rolls right over us. We say, where did that come from? It came because we weren't aware. We weren't sufficiently cognizant of what he's trying to do. So how do we win this battle? What do we do to win this battle? We become familiar with his strategies. We become familiar with his schemes. And we prepare ourselves to fight him, to resist him, firm in our faith, and watch him flee from us. We become the aggressor. We become the victor. We win this thing for the glory of and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So over the next two weeks, this morning, I'd like to try to do, deal with three of the strategies. Next week, we'll deal with the next five. But the first three strategies that Satan wants to use to defeat us are these. First of all, he invites us to fight him one-on-one. So Satan invites us into a battle, mano a mano. And too often, we say, sure, I'll fight you. I, I can take you. We can, I, I can defeat you. He will convince us that we're strong enough. He'll convince us that we are committed enough. He will convin- convince us that because we are so passionate about winning the battle that we can win it. And what does the Bible say? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. You see, fighting the enemy on his terms is a recipe for absolute abject defeat. You're not going to win. Fighting the enemy on God's terms in the strength that he provides is the first step in understanding what it means to be a victorious Christian. In the strength of the Lord, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Fighting Satan unaccompanied, fighting him just you, you and him, is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. Like you can't win that. Not that I've ever been in a gunfight, but thinking about it, I've done a lot of research. You can't win that fight. So how do we win? We got to fight on the Lord's terms. So when I walk, I walk in Halton Hills. When you have hills, you've got valleys. And just sort of behind my house in Georgetown, there's these trails that follow along 
um, Silver Creek. And there's, I don't know, from one end to the other, it's probably six, eight kilometers or thereabouts. Anyways, I'll go down there a lot by myself, and I feel pretty secure because, like, look at me. Like, I am six foot three, 195 pounds. I can see people smirking. It's just so disheartening. 195 pounds. And nobody's going to mess with this, are they? A lot of times when I walk, I will, um, I'll invite a couple of my friends to walk with me. One was, a, was an elder in our church, is a dear, dear friend. Another uh, got saved in our church, Jewish guy, got saved in our church one Easter, um, just a great guy. Now, when I get down into the valley with those guys, Mike is six foot six, 140 pounds, and he looks like Howie Long. He used to, that was his nickname. He looks, like, <laughs> he looks like Howie Long. He's massive, just huge man. Craig is 6'5", 260 pounds. And so I get into that situation, and I'm the little guy. And it's the weirdest thing. Most times when I'm in a situation like this, I'm kind of looking down, right? Because I'm the big, tough guy, right? 6'3", 195 pounds. When I'm with those guys, like I'm the little guy. Like I'm just looking up, and I'm thinking, these guys have my back. I don't, you know, hell's angels could be down here. I'm not sure what's around the next corner, but I'm okay. These guys aren't going to, those guys aren't going to mess with us because I got my two friends with me. You see, if we're going to fight Satan well, we've got to realize we're the little guy. We've got to realize that we can't. We've got to realize that we're incapable of winning this battle on our own. We've got to fight it in the strength of the Lord. We've got to fight it in his strength, his enabling grace. Paul understood this when he wrote 2 Corinthians 12. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but here's some of the things that he says in that passage of Scripture. He says, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. He says, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I, when I realize I'm weak, incapable, don't have what it takes to win the fight, then suddenly, somehow, by grace, I become strong. So I boast all the more in my weaknesses so that the strength of Christ will be seen in me. So what Satan wants for you, let me tell you this right now, is for you to have a deep passion for holiness and try to attain that by yourself. Just go out of here in the strength of your physical capacities. Pull up your socks, rededicate, recommit, and get really serious about living a holy life and dealing with that sin that has had its hand around your throat. What you gotta realize is that you can't win. You simply can't win on your own. Your strength is in the Lord and the strength of his might. And at the end of this service, during communion, you're going to have an opportunity to receive from Christ his strength and in his enabling grace for a particular sin. I am convinced that when the church is gathered like this and we celebrate communion together, the Lord Jesus is never more present than in that moment. And he is here for you. 
He is here to communicate grace and strength and ability and power. He is here for you to leave with you and to empower and enable you to live a life that you would never otherwise have been ever able to live were it not for his grace made perfect in your weakness. And so when we get to that moment in the service, I want you to very intentionally, very deliberately reach out to Jesus and receive from him what he has for you. Secondly, he convinces us that we can fight out a uniform. Satan's strategy is to convince us that we don't need the whole armor of God. If, if I got a sword and I've got my sandals on, my, my shoes on, I'm good to go, Lord. He says in this passage of scripture twice, put on the whole armor of God. Not just part of it, not just some of it, not just five out of the six pieces, put it all on. All of it has to be on because you can't win out of armor, out of uniform. So Paul is gonna begin now to talk about what would be an absolutely common everyday kind of understanding to people in Ephesus. What a Roman legionary looked like in his uniform. When a Roman legionary went out to do any kind of, on campaign, any kind of fighting, any kind of marching, any kind of traveling, anything, he would wear these six very basic pieces of armor. He'd wear a belt, breastplate, shoes, a shield, a helmet, and a short stabbing sword, 24-inch sword called a gladius, basically a stabbing sword. So there's this big shield, he would hide behind the shield, and the whole legion would just kind of move forward, stabbing as they went. That's, what the, that's, that's why the Roman armies were unstoppable for those hundreds of years. If you read about Julius Caesar, his conquest in Gaul, it's amazing what the, what the legionary could do. He would often be asked to hike 30 or 40 miles in a day in full uniform, carrying between 75 and 80 pounds of, on his back. When they got to the destination that they were going to be at, they would unload everything. Half the legion would stand in a circle facing out in full uniform. The other half would dig a trench. They would put a wooden palisade around the fort that they were going to stay in at night. They would completely secure it so they would have a moat, a wooden palisade, and they would stay in it at night. The next day, they'd go and march another 30, 40 miles, and the guys who had dug that day got to stand guard that afternoon as the other guys were digging the hole, cutting the wood, and building the fort. The Roman legions were, were incredible. But none of them would stand guard, none of them would march, and none of them would go into battle without being fully equipped, wearing the whole armor that the state had provided for them. They knew that to do so was fatal because it would be seen and they would, it would be taken advantage of. For us today, many of us, many of us have forgotten that we're in a war at all. We see this world as a place of pleasure, a place of peace, a place of tranquility, a place where all our dreams can be met. We've developed our bucket list because life is good, and the reality is that we are in a war. I suggested on Tuesday at staff meeting that we should sing Onward Christian Soldiers. I don't know if that's a real popular one at Harvest. It wasn't real popular at our old church, but man, what a song. Because it describes who we are. We're Christian soldiers. That's what we've been called to do. Paul calls us that in Timothy. 
And we are called to war. We're called to march forward and to fight the enemy until every foe is conquered and Christ is Lord indeed. But we've become convinced that this world is a place of, a place of peace and pleasure, not war and conflict. As a consequence, we're vulnerable because we don't tend to put on the armor the way we need to put it on. Look what Paul says in verse 13. He repeats himself, put on the whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God. You may be able to withstand an evil, evil day. <clears throat> and why does he say this? Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is a formidable enemy. So we need to put on the whole armor of God. Now let me say this. We're going to turn to the first thing, the belt of truth, in a second. And when I begin to talk about this, I know that some of you are going to say, I don't really want that piece of armor right now. Thank you very much. You've got to put it on. Because unless we put on the whole armor of God, and the five things we're going to talk about next week, unless we put on the whole armor of God, individually and as a church, we are vulnerable to Satan. Satan is about stealing, killing, and destroying John, John 10, 10. That's what Jesus told us. And so we've got to be prepared to fight wearing the whole armor of God. And the third thing then, <clears throat> Satan's strategy. He encourages us to live a double dishonest life, a life of hypocrisy. The first piece of armor that a Roman soldier would put on is called the belt of truth. And the belt of truth isn't like a belt. It's not something that he used to hold up his pants. The first thing a Roman soldier would do when he would go into battle would be to gird his loins. So essentially, he would take his, his short tunic and he would wrap it up between his legs and create lots of padding around his most vulnerable parts. The belt of truth. Without being indelicate, today we would call it, the first thing you put on is your jockstrap. Now, I didn't, I didn't take up hockey. I told you I didn't like, I didn't like uh, exercising when I was young. I didn't take up hockey until I was 30. So I got some used equipment. FYI, that's not the greatest thing to do. <laughs> anyway, I got some used equipment, and I go to the hockey thing. A bunch of guys invited me. I go, and I sort of watch what's going on. So the first thing the guys do is they put on the jock. Okay, good plan. Do that. Then you put on your socks. Got it. And then so you get dressed, and then you get out on the ice. And I remember one night, one you know, night, 10 o'clock at night, I'm out skating around, and I'm realizing to myself, I have forgotten one fundamentally important piece of equipment. And I remember saying to myself, should I stay out here and play, or should I go back? And I... Smart enough to know that, okay, I'm going to go back. And so I take everything off, put on the uh, uniform again with the proper foundational equipment. I girded my loins. It's the first piece of armor that you've got to put on as a Christian. Because if you don't, you're the most vulnerable, weak powerless Christian on the planet. So he says it's the belt of truth. Now he's not talking, the word he uses here is the word aletheia. 
I wanted to name my daughter Aletheia, actually. It's a great name. If you have a girl coming, Aletheia is a beautiful name. And it's the Greek word, and it means sincerity. It means authenticity. It means honesty. It means transparency. So the belt of truth is that which the Christian puts on that allows him to be real. Allows him or her to live an authentic, transparent, honest life before his brothers and sisters in the faith. It means to live truthfully. A Christian who fights the first well and wins, the first thing that he or she does is put on a life of full disclosure. A transparent, real, vulnerable, open about struggles, sharing weaknesses, talking about temptations, talking about your sin, your failure, your setbacks. A Christian who wins, listen, a Christian who wins is a person who has people in his life that that he or she can be absolutely naked with. Let me say this. If you're okay with hypocrisy, phoniness, two-facedness, you can never be a mature Christian. Ever, 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 ever. And many of us don't ever get past this one piece of armor. And the result is that we are often vulnerable and weak. And the reason for this is that we have never, ever allowed the gospel. The gospel has never come to that place where it's sunk so deeply into our lives that we have been able to set aside the shame. That being able to set aside what causes us to want to cover up and hide and pretend that we're something that we're not. We carry our shame still. And as a result, we don't live transparent, open, honest lives. Think about Adam and Eve. They were naked before sin came. They were naked and they were unashamed. And then sin came and shame came. And sin and shame drove them into hiding. They covered up. They hid. And God made a covering for them. And from that moment on until the most pivotal moment in all of history, that was mankind's lot And then Jesus went to the cross naked for us. And he took our sin and he took our shame and he took our place. And God punished him so that we could be forgiven. And he covers us over in the righteousness of Jesus. So the shame is gone. And since we're covered in the righteousness of Christ, we can be absolutely naked with one another. We can talk about our failures. We can talk about our sin. We can talk about our struggles. We can talk about our weaknesses. We can talk about our spiritual battles. We can talk about how we fell on our face and how we need a brother or sister to come alongside and encourage us. We can go before God without any shame and simply say, Father, I am so messed up right now. I need your grace. We can honestly admit who we are. We can stop lying to ourselves. We can stop justifying. We can stop pretending. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that when God, the God of grace, covers us with the righteousness of Jesus, that we should be okay with the nakedness of soul that is the belt of truth. And folks, let me tell you this. 
You don't need to go spreading your dirty laundry in front of the whole church, but if you don't have people in your lives, like I'm talking about people with whom you can be absolutely transparent, godly people who can hold you accountable and push you and give you counsel and pray with you, if you don't have those people, you are done. You're done. You cannot win. You must have that. The belt of truth, the first thing that you put on every morning is a commitment to be honest with God, honest with yourself, and honest with some other guys, some other women, godly people who will push you, encourage you, pray with you, stand with you. That's why James 5 says it's so beautiful. We oftentimes think James 5 is only talking about physical healing. I don't think so. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The vast majority of our healing that we need is not physical healing. It is spiritual healing. And we need the community of the church. We need the community of faith to gather around us. The fact is, we are all sinners saved by grace. The fact is, we all struggle. Our struggles may be different. The sins may be different. But we are all battling. We are all struggling. We are all fighting this common enemy. And we cannot do it alone. We've got to put on the full armor of God. And the first thing we put on is that commitment to be honest with somebody. Folks, if you don't have somebody in your life or a group of people in your life, get into a small group. Call Brett. Talk to Charles. You need to have a place to be real and transparent and authentic. You need a place where you can be you because you can. And I'll stop with this, because you can. Let the gospel sink down deep. Let the implications of the cross sink down deep. You are unconditionally loved by God. You have received the absolute perfection of Jesus. He has taken your carnality and your sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. He loves you. You are secure now and forever. If God thinks the world of you, what does it matter if somebody else looks down on you? Who gives a rip? If God is for you, who can be against you? So be you. Just come out of the closet. Be you. Be real. Be authentic. Let the gospel, let the work of the cross get down inside And the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to realize, I don't need to hide anymore. I don't need these coverings anymore. I don't need this mask anymore. I don't need to pretend anymore. God knows me, and I, brother, I'd like you to know me. Let's get to know each other. Let's pray for one another. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's grow up together in Christ. Amen? Okay, let's pray together, and we will celebrate communion. Father, I just thank you so much for the cross. I thank you for what Jesus has done for us. I thank you for our standing in him. I thank you that we are clothed in his righteousness, that you see us as perfect. I thank you that he took our shame. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now we are clothed in your righteousness, Lord. Give us now the ability, I pray, to live real, full disclosure lives before you, before ourselves, before one another, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.